listening to the Caravan of Hope, promoting peace, safety, and well-being for every individual. Welcome to the Caravan of Hope, uh, promoting peace, safety, and well-being for every human being on Earth. With me, Brent Caldwell, and me, COVID Omatic. Uh, we're coming to you this week again from Ōtipoti, Dunedin, in the South Island of Aotearoa, New Zealand. And today it's Wednesday the 4th of February. Happy Valentine's Day. Well, yes. <laughs> I'm going to take that as a cue to move on quickly. <laughs> this week we're going to um, do a wee bit of a follow-up and have a chat about um, last Saturday's march here in Dunedin. And then in probably uh, in short succession, we'll um, talk about three things before we wind things up. Um, first of all is maybe have a, a bit of a reflection about um, what Ruler had to say last week and yeah. um, what I'd be interested to hear your reflections on that and how and what resonated for you. Mm. Um, and um, the other thing I thought we should mention was you've got some friends who've just come back from Germany. Yes. And they've been talking to you about the um, political landscape there and in particular a move to the right. It, well, a move to the right, but also a um, a move called the silent majority. Mm. Mm. And that um, that piqued my interest because I think um, the silent majority is um, well. I was going to say drowned out, but they're not making any noise. They tend to be um, grouped as as people who don't really care, and the status quo is just fine. Yeah. Um, and then on the just to round things off, I'm going to go back in time to about 1990 when I um, went to Romania on the um, tail end of the wall coming down in Germany and in the Ceausescu regime being overthrown and um, talk about the reflections that changed my view of the world from going from the first world living in London to something I'd never experienced before. And the reason we want to talk about that is really just to draw a comparison between the fact that 12,000 miles away or however far away you are where you're watching or listening to this podcast, the events in Gaza can just seem like it's just something that we just shut the lid on our laptop and it goes away. And, and in particular, it was a phrase that you said earlier about what it's like on the other side of the fence. Mm. And I, yeah, and I think that was about when I came out at Checkpoint Charlie, having come through East Germany, and yeah. you suddenly get bombarded by Westernism. So we'll have a bit of a yarn about that. I went on last week's Peace March, and it's probably about the third one I think I've managed to get to. And it was the first time that the weather had been really, really foul. It was bucketing down. Yeah. And we um, assembled at the museum and set off. The The rain kind of dampened everyone's spirits. Um, it was a summer's day, so it wasn't cold, cold. But once the damp started settling in and um, I had a friend I saw there, I gave her my umbrella because I had a, quite a decent jacket on. And we walked along and we got absolutely soaked. So by the time we got to the octagon where it was time for speeches and things, people were pacing around a bit and getting a bit edgy. And the reflection I had was 
how easy it was for me to deal with the circumstances that the weather had provided me with. And my first thought turned to people in refugee camps who've been unhoused and their homes have been destroyed and now they're living under um, heavy-duty plastic with small, thin, wooden frames with about a million other people. And um, it was a very, very poignant reminder of how much we take for granted here in our country um, and our ability to live in peace. We sometimes get so focused on the pettiness of politics or splitting hairs about things that don't seem to be quite as important. And the noise from our phones and televisions and media blocks out the real lived experiences of those people. So I came away from that march not feeling guilty so much, but being being confronted by the stark contrast between oh, it's raining, I can brush that off, I can go home and put some fresh clothes on, I'll be fine, to, you know, that could be the straw that breaks the camel's back if my shelter's not waterproof, my kids are sick, the the water I can't drink. Um, There's no heating. It's horrific. And I guess I'm thinking of the southern end of Gaza near Rafah on the Egyptian border, which is um, absolutely log-jammed with people evacuated from the north, trying to flee to Egypt, um, and now they've been told they have to take themselves away from there, otherwise they'll be um, at risk of becoming collateral damage in um, Mr Netanyahu's scorched-earth policy to eliminate Hamas. Collateral damage again, having Mm. just moved from the north to the middle to the south, Mm. to supposedly safe places where they've been bombed and shot. And that sounds all well and good, but if you think back to um, what they've left, Mm. basically they would leave Rafah and then head back north to what? There's nothing, really. Nothing. Concrete rubble. Concrete rubble. No sanitation, no services, very little energy, very little um, uh, infrastructure. Yeah, it's a I mean, it's still appalling, and, and I feel glad that you went, went on that walk. Um, I, I actually went up to Wanaka last weekend and met up with an old school friend um, who I hadn't seen, for, we figured, since 1991. Mm. Um, and it was interesting because he spent his life um, helping in um, aid agencies, um, helping people with their agriculture overseas as an economist. And um, it really it it kind of showed me well. Actually, there are you know there are good people in the world doing good things. Do you know? It's like you know he he spent his whole life doing that, and you could see because he he looked like a a happy person who's who's had a life well spent. Mm. Yeah. So that was probably my takeaway from the march on. Um Saturday, I spent hours going through my house trying to find my Palestinian scarf that I bought when I was in um, Israel. Um, I think it's it's disappeared, so that was very upsetting. Oh. So I um, I took one as uh, I bought one at the mar- at the end of the march, so that I can have it in the back window of my car and just sort of I don't know subtly keep it in front of people. Yeah. Um, 
Because I think that was something Ruler talked about last week, wasn't it? Um, that it's sort of fading into the background a little bit. Yeah. And I notice it with myself. Actually, I'm not. I'm not paying as much attention to the the news. Mm-hmm. Um, but speaking of Ruler, um, you wanted to sort of have a, a chat about some of the reflections you'd had on the things that mm. she had mentioned while you were here. Um, well, it, I think there was one particular sentence where she said, you know, I just feel hollow and empty and, you know, just... Um, I guess kind of powerless and helpless, like sort of what started us on this this podcast. Um and I thought, well, it, you know, what the people who are not living in, in Palestine, in Gaza, are, are able to do is somehow they're able to hold hope. It's a bit like when, you're a, when you go and see a therapist or a counsellor mm. and you feel absolute despair. Mm. The, the therapist can actually, one of their roles is to hold hope for you, even though you think there's no hope. Mm. Somebody outside of the country can can still hold hope, you mm. know. And maybe that's also in in going on the marches and supporting the people from Palestine. We we give them a sense that we're also holding that hope for them. I mean, I, I hope that this situation in Gaza ends soon, you know, that there's peace there and, you know, this insanity ends, basically. I was thinking about what Rula had said about um, her parents... Mm. You know, the fact that her grandparents were the original 1948ers who'd been sort of moved out of Israel, that her father had been the, born the in Nekba. a... Yeah, her father had been born in a tent. Yeah. And, you know, they've gone on to to make just the best of the situation. They've, you know, she was talking to me about her brothers and her sisters and all the things they've gone on to do. And, yeah. it, you know, it is quite incredible how resilient they are. Yes, incredible. But I could sense her sense of sorrow at being so far away from her family, mm. waking up to sunshine and blue skies here, not knowing if she would get a call saying another relative or someone close to her has been injured or were still killed. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 it gave me a lot of food for thought and it gave me real purpose about going on the march that yeah. if anything she was taking strength from the fact that complete strangers, people she knows, were out there supporting her. I thought, that, and I, that was that was a nice takeaway, I thought. Mm. Yeah. Well, things in the world are still ticking along and um, you were wanting to have a chat about um, a, a discussion or a conversation you had with some friends of yours in Germany. Well, I had a friend who's recently spent some time in Germany and uh, I was asking, I said, oh, hasn't the, the government become right-wing there? Because before they had Angela Merkel, mm. um, who, in, in a sense, is what we'll come on to next, that she knew what it was like to live on the other side of the fence, having been brought up in East Germany. Um, and so I think that gave her that sense of, of compassion for people, particularly like the refugees... Uh, when they took in a million refugees from Syria, mm. when everybody else was trying to shut their boundaries. Mm. Um, but anyhow, in Germany, there's, there has been a, a rise of the far right. Um, 
And this seemed to be quite worrying. But in the, she said what's happening is there's a, a movement called the silent majority, which is people, um, my friend is in her 70s, she said her friends who are in her 70s and, and lots of younger people are going out on the streets every weekend. Um, it, uh, and she unfortunately, she didn't tell me what they're actually doing, but I think they're going on the streets and demonstrating that they don't agree with the policies of the right wing. I've just had a wee look here, and mm. um, it's... Uh, I think it's in response to uh, the fact that Germany's far right have discussed mass deportation plans right. uh, about pushing tens of thousand people... Um, uh, out of Germany, which has brought tens of thousands of people out onto the street. Yeah. Um, and so Germans from all over the country have been taking part in, you know, over 100 demonstrations. Bundesliga coaches, uh, churches and bishops are all warning people, saying that, you know, anyone who does nothing now has learned nothing from school and from history. Right. And, um, yeah, it's been... It was... Um, and, and what was it they were learning? What was the lesson they were going to learn? From stepping out. Yeah. You said if they don't do something, they haven't learned anything from history. What's the lesson from history? Well, the lesson from history is the persecution of the Jews uh, during the Holocaust in um, the, due to the rise of National Socialism in, um, and in pe- Germany. And that people didn't stop that yeah. where, at the beginning. Yeah. And that... Um, were you just testing me then? <laughs> testing my knowledge? <laughs> Crikey, I come to this podcast. Well, I, think, I, think, I think you said it earlier, because I was yeah. just trying to prompt you. Yeah. <laughs> well, you did a good job, yeah. but it made me think. Um, yeah, I, I think that the silent majority is, is a way of having a voice without sort of um, declaiming too much, and it's just sheer weight of numbers. Mm-hmm. It's a visual representation uh, it's not the same thing, but I, I, it, it puts me in mind of the march when we go from the museum, when, you know, we walk past the hospital. Right. We're quiet. Yeah. And that is just so powerful to see yeah. a large group of people with flags and signs. Yeah. Deathly silent. And, and that's in memory of all the people who've died. Yeah. And in this way, I think it's good to see these types of responses getting mobilised early. Yeah. Because um, you, you, you can't always wait for the system to, to make everything OK. No. And unfortunately, you know, we're... You I think that's probably the biggest lesson, that's one of the biggest lessons that's come out of what's happening in Gaza is actually the system that governments, you know, just don't seem to be able to do the right thing. They don't seem to be able to act as human beings and just say, look, let's stop this government around the world. There are some making effort. But But Robert Patman talked about the fact that none of our pressing problems stay within borders anymore. Environmentalism, um, secularism, um, radicalisation, fighting for resources, uh, all of these things are pan-global. You know, they, they, yeah. they can't be isolated to oh, just the Middle East or um, a small section of um, the South Pacific. Yeah. Um, they're far more bigger than that. And, and I think that's why people have to get mobilised. Yeah. Um, and I guess, you know, it was so lovely to see not a sign of majority, but a lot of people getting out on the street who hadn't gotten out on the street for our national um, 
holiday that we have here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, uh, Waitangi Day, which is um, February the 6th every year. Um, the current coalition government has a partner who is talking about rewriting the treaty uh, that was or clarifying and sort of streamlining the principles that underline that treaty. And, yeah, the people who came out across the country. Well, it's a huge... And I think, and I think politicians see when people get on their feet. Yeah, yeah. Well, we hope so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So um, interesting times in Germany. Mm. Mm. I wonder. And I, th- I think that's still happening all over the world. You know, mm. I, I saw a little thing which was students in California somewhere uh, taking over the the court of justice. You know, uh, protesting for peace. Mm. So I think there are people all over the world, like um, who was telling us that the, the it's the student Robert, wasn't he? Was telling us that in the USA, it's the young people are actually mm. who are not influenced by the main media, which are, are backing yeah. Biden and Netanyahu, but are actually making their own decisions based on what they can see and what they see, are, and, and actually coming out and saying, well, you know, we actually don't agree with this in a big way. And that was something that Ruler made me think of because um, we've talked with Abram, we've talked with um, a number of people about the reportage that comes out of Gaza. Yeah. But um, the, the amount of um, people who are filming things on their phones or putting out a, a different narrative based on what is actually seen on the ground as opposed to a journalist summarising the information they've been given by speaking to officials. Yeah. Uh, I think that's really ch- a, a game-changer, really. It is, because those people may be, you know, the BBC reporter is probably in somewhere like Doha or something, mm. you know, so it's all mm. second-hand anyway. Mm. Mm. Okay. So... Our other topic we were going to chat today was about reflections that I had um, when we first started talking about the podcast. We, mm. we were saying, here we are 12,000 miles away from Gaza, what on earth can we do? And it put me in mind of a trip I made to Romania after the Ceausescu revolution, in, um, which was on Christmas Day in 1989. And spookily enough... I was in Jerusalem watching that unfold on television. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, and then the next day I went to church and met Desmond Tutu. In Jerusalem? I did. He, 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 was, um, he was leading a service on Christmas Day. It was just... Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it was fantastic. Went to Bethlehem St- Square on uh, Christmas Eve, and, and, of course, this year none of that could happen yeah. uh, because of, the, of the, the situation in Gaza. So... What I remember watching was thinking, oh, gosh, all these people are now free and everything's going to be great. And the school I worked at um, arranged for some supplies to be sent down and given to charity. Right. Uh, They filled a container with donated goods and we'd been having correspondence with this family who lived just out of Bucharest and they were going to sort of track its progress. So I thought, I'll just go down... Yeah, uh, and and sort of hitchhike around Eastern Europe because there was a lot of things happening. Yeah, um, uh, there was rumblings of nationalism in um, the former Yugoslavia. Uh, the Czech Republic had um, elected Václav Havel. Yeah, 
there was, was a lot. Who was a poet? Who was a poet? Yeah, but there was a lot going on. Yeah. So I flew down to Bucharest. The truck left London at the start of July, and school finished around the middle of July. So I flew down to Bucharest. And I remember I got to um, Frankfurt on a Pan Am flight, and everybody got off the plane. There was only two of us on the seven three seven flying into Bucharest. That sort of got me um, worried. And then as the plane taxied in at the um, airport, you know, the bullet holes and everything were still there from the, the fighting that had occurred when Ceausescu was overthrown. And I suddenly thought, ooh, this is a bit different. Mm. And I had a number of experiences in that country which put me in a state of mind of how could this possibly be happening on the same piece of land where not too many hundreds of miles away, people are living completely peaceful lives. They have access to food, water, shelter, everything they need. But because of um, an ideology or because of something, this is what they're they're putting up with. And I guess the things that come to my mind, and I I remember I said to you about the wall, um, because the wall had just come down the November before that. Right. It was still up a lot in Berlin. You know, people were taking pieces of it and stuff like that. But the reunification of Germany was about to happen. Yeah. Um, But it was as clear as as being an east-west divide when you walk through that wall. So in Romania, um, people were living hand-to-mouth still. Uh, There was... um, I paid for accommodation with scented soap. This woman had never seen scented soap and I had half a bar left over. Oh, my goodness. And she asked if she could have it. And I said, yeah, sure. And she wouldn't take any payment for the room. She just said the soap was a gift in itself. Wow. Um, and I thought it just brought everything right down to its very, very basic level. So I continued on through Eastern Europe and um, I went through uh, Yugoslavia and there were rumblings there of discontent the further north you went. Mm. I went through um, Czechoslovakia and then, well, went to Bulgaria, Czechoslovakia, um, Yugoslavia and Hungary. And in Hungary, people were hanging up their... um, uh, In Bulgaria, sorry, people were hanging up their um, communist red books off trees, you know. It was... Things were moving that quick. Right. And I got... One of the last East German transit visas, because uh, they they were going to stop issuing them because there was no point. But I, we got one. Um, I think we we're coming from the Czech Republic at that time, and we arrived at this station on the eastern side of Berlin, and it was just stark and bare, and there was just nothing there. Yeah. And then you walk through the Brandenburg Gate or through Checkpoint Charlie and it's just like you've walked into an amusement park which is called Western Culture. Wow. And you could buy and eat as much as you wanted. Yeah. And just a few days before, you know, people had been giving me their food. Yeah. I stayed with an old couple in the countryside. This is the family that had sent the truck, um, asked for the truck to come. And... I would get up in the morning and they'd present me with two boiled eggs and and they'd said, oh, no, we've had ours. And it was two days before I clicked that they were giving me their food and they weren't eating oh because gosh. I was a visitor. Yeah. Uh, I, it was just terrible. And all around this village, which was called Stilpenny, which was outside of Bucharest, there was 
there was um, so many poor, poor people just living hand to mouth. Mm. And I got back to London. Uh, I think I took a train from Berlin to my sister's place in Amsterdam. We were just out of Amsterdam. And I just couldn't get over how everyone smelt of washing detergent and um, everyone was so clean and everything was organised and orderly and there was food for miles. Mm. And I kind of thought, if you're on the outside of that wall, there's no looking in. And that's what put me in mind of the people of Gaza because they're they're sitting amongst rubble with intelligent people trying to kill them and they've got no hope of improving or... There's there's no place to go that's safe. And they can't think further than the next meal or the next night. Will it be safe? Will they be okay? How are their relatives? And I think that's what put me in mind of that trip to Romania because as a tourist, whether you're an... Um, a, a traveling tourist or you're a, an experienced tourist or you're whatever to walk for a mile in their shoes is to know and understand what they're doing and I thought it resonated with that march we got absolutely soaked and were cold and uncomfortable but it, it pales yeah. in, into comparison of, of what those people are being put through and I guess that's why we have to think we can make a difference by doing something about it I think that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, thank you for that. But I remember, I think you also told me that you spent two hours in a queue. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, the, yeah. when I arrived in Bucharest, the, there was... Because the country, the people running the city were corrupt, yeah. all the food that was coming in from the UN and from all these other people was being clipped off. So at the border, some got clipped off by the border yeah. officials, then it gets to the mayors and they clip off their bit. And... Even in the department stores, the, the mannequins modelling clothes were standing on empty Red Cross parcels. Right. And I joined a queue because I, I landed there and obviously I don't speak Romanian and no one spoke English. And uh, there was no food in this hotel hotel I was staying in. So I joined a queue the next day um, thinking it was like for some kind of food thing. And it ended up just being a queue for toothpaste. That was two hours. Yeah. 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 And then I, find, I ended up going to a pub and they were selling this kind of mashed potato and, that's, and so I had mashed potato and beer and the, but I had no real food for about two days. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly makes you appreciate what you've got. Yeah. Mm. yeah I'm, I'm just remembering a time when I was in India and um, I was actually a monk at the time and... Um, just walking around and, and kind of seeing the people, you know, it was like these people who were living on the street. Um, you know, and these people begging. And But the thing that struck me was the most amazing thing, these people living on the street who somehow managed to, at the beginning of the day, put on clean clothes like they had... They had washed the clothes under the tap, beaten it out on the rocks, Mm. dried it, put on these clean clothes and went off somewhere to work probably, you Mm. know, for nothing. Mm. But they're extraordinary. I thought, how can you do that? I mean, like, you know, my clothes were filthy and I just walked along the street, you know, Mm. and Mm. I could go to a 
a reasonable place to stay. So, mm. yeah. yeah. I think there's a degree of, you know, comfort that's built into our lifestyle where we find things unimaginable, but mm. it's very easy to end up there. And, you know, I think of, you know, I'm 60, so imagine I'm, I'm 60 years old and I'm in Gaza, I might be coming to the end of my career as a teacher or yeah. who knows what, and then the next thing, my, my school's destroyed. School's or, destroyed, um, your house my, is destroyed. The, the, the house is gone. Mm. I know I'm banging on about this, but it, it just really, really strikes me as being ironic that due to a, a quirk of the universe, yeah. we're here yeah. and we're not there. That's right. And I, I think, you know, maybe one of the things this is showing this is that, you know, we're actually all human beings, mm. you know, and maybe it's starting to wake us up you know, in an unfortunate way. Maybe this is actually helping us to wake up to the fact that, you know, actually half the planet or two-thirds of the planet is really struggling, you know, and it's difficult to imagine that because we live in such comfortable lives, you know, like today... I just went down to the beach and went swimming in the sea, you know, beautiful sand. Mm. And there's no rubbish, you know. And Abram's saying, well, look, you know, Gaza's got beautiful, beautiful beaches. Yeah. Uh, easy to yeah, say they've got beautiful beaches, but, you know, if you're sleeping on them every day and you're going to get um, bombed, it's um, yeah. not easy. Okay. Well, that probably wraps up um, our podcast for this week. Thank you um, for joining us. Anything, any closing thoughts? Are you marching this weekend? Yep. Okay. I will be there. Um, so, again, the main message of this podcast is don't think there's nothing you can't do. Email your MP, go on a march, write a letter, and maybe have a look at some of the um, BDS stuff that Ruler talked about around um, boycotting um, some of those companies, even if it's just making a decision Every small little step can can make a difference. But on behalf of uh, Caravan of Hope, um, from me, Brent Caldwell. And from me, COVID Omatic. May you be well, may you be happy, and may you live with ease. And may you live in peace. May everyone live in peace. So if you look